thank you very much for coming today. We're pleased to have uh, Julia Peters, who's based at the University of Tübingen, which is the heart of German idealism. And she's um, a specialist in German idealism. She did her PhD dissertation here in London with Sebastian Gardner on Hegel, and was one of the founders of the London Aesthetics Forum, I believe. So I was uh, coming back, very pleased, especially pleased to have her back today. Um, as those of you who come often will know, we are grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continuing support of this series. And Julia's um, title today is Self-Expression, Art and Nature in Hegel's Philosophy and Spirit. Over to you. Thank you very much, Andrew, for the very kind introduction and also um, for the invitation. It's really great to be back and it's true that I was one of the founders of the London Aesthetic Forum and it just occurred to me today that it may be actually the 10th anniversary of the... Oh, wow. Because it must have been founded either in 2006 and 2007 when I was a PhD student uh, at UCL. But I have to say that it looks far more professional now than it used to back in the day. So I'm, um, I'm really impressed by what has become of the London Aesthetic Forum and I... I'm sure I cannot claim any credit for that. So uh, it's really great to see that it's continuing in today. Okay, so um, I'm going to speak for hopefully not more than 50 minutes. Um, if it should be longer than that, then you can just stop me. But I think it, uh, it should be roughly in that area. Okay, and uh, so one more word before I start. So I'm going to talk about Hegel's philosophy of Geists. That's the German word and as you probably all know there's an issue about how to translate this expression whether you say mind or spirit in English. I'm mostly going to use the word spirit because as you probably also know in Hegel the notion of Geist has a broader meaning than mind. Um, but I'm also going to use mind sometimes if it's, if it's, if it's more appropriate, but um, just, just so you know that there's a translation issue here which is kind of lurking in the background. Okay, so the handout is fairly uh, detailed in order to hopefully allow you to follow the, 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 the line of argument. And uh, there are also some quotations on the handout. I'm not going to read all of them, but some of them are going to be very important. Okay, so um, I start with the first section. It has almost become a commonplace in recent interpretations of Hegel's conception of spirit, as put forward, for instance, by Robert Pippin or Terry Pinkert more recently, that to be a spiritual creature is to take a negative stance towards nature. And the idea behind that is that to say that to be a spiritual creature is to be able to subject natural impulses and impressions to critical scrutiny and um, to be able to not act on your natural impulses and not immediately submit to your natural impressions but to be able to put them into question and instead ask for rational grounds for belief and action. Um, so uh, that is what is usually taken to be the, the the core idea of what Hegel means when he talks about spirit. And um, um, it's expressed by, in, this, uh, in, the term that, in the terms that, to say that to be a spiritual creature is to negate nature, to be able to negate nature. And that means to not be determined by nature, but instead to be self-determined through reason. And this negation thesis is offered as a reading of a claim which is central uh, to Hegel's philosophy of spirit, which he formulates again and again in different versions, and that is the claim that to be a spiritual creature is to liberate oneself from nature. So the idea is that it's constitutive of spiritual creatures as spiritual creatures that they uh, liberate themselves from nature. And this uh, quotation number one, where this idea is expressed very clearly, is one of the central passages that these interpretations go to, and I'm not going to read it now, but if you look at it, you will see that the idea of uh, negating nature, liberating oneself from nature here has this vaguely Kantian ring where you, uh, you know, abstract from everything that's natural, that's, uh, that's somehow predetermined, and uh, so make room for self-determination as it were. 
Okay, so that's in the background as the dominant reading of Hegel's um, notion of spirit. And in this paper, I really want to draw attention to a different strand in Hegel's philosophy of spirit, which I think points to a very different way of understanding how spirit relates to nature for Hegel. And, and the central focus is on the claim that spirit is manifestation. And this uh, notion of manifestation, this term is to a certain extent a terminus technicus, so it's a technical term. Uh, and I'm going to explain what Hegel means by it. And I'm also going to argue and explain that I think uh, a more colloquial way of expressing the same idea is to say that spirit is self-expression. So the central focus on the claim that spirit is self-expression. Now, at this point you may wonder, well, this is the London Aesthetics Forum, so I should better say something about philosophy of art and aesthetics. Well, so the central idea here is that the core paradigm of self-expression for Hegel is to be found in works of art. So this is, the, this is where we have to go to in order to understand what self-expression means for Hegel. And the central idea is therefore, of course, discussed in Hegel's aesthetics. Um, and I think if we understand how and why that is the case, then this is going to have very interesting implications for how spirit relates to nature on Hegel's account. So that's why aesthetics is central but to, to this reading. But on the other hand, my view is also that self-expression plays a crucial role in Hegel's philosophy of mind, also in the, in the more narrow sense now, uh, more generally. Namely in the sense that it's constitutive of something to be, uh, uh, well, something, something to be a mind that it expresses itself. Um, and so the idea is really that we can, on the one hand, illuminate Hegel's philosophy of mind, more narrowly understood now, in light of Hegel's philosophy of art and aesthetics, and also the other way around, and we can understand what's going on in Hegel's aesthetics by looking at what he does in his philosophy of mind. So there's really a continuity here between philosophy of mind, more narrowly conceived, and aesthetics. Um, and that's also how I want to go about uh, uh, it in this talk. Um, I'm going to introduce the notion of manifestation or self-expression um, by discussing it in light, of of, in light of a phenomenon which Hegel discusses in his philosophy of mind. And then I'm going to move on to his philosophy of art and aesthetics. And the hope is that the two uh, discussions will shed light on each other. So that's really the structure of the paper. Section two is about philosophy of mind um, more narrowly understood. And then the second section is about, uh, the third section is about um, the philosophy of art. So at this point, now you may wonder, so what becomes then of the the dominant reading that I was talking about in the beginning, the idea that spirit takes, is constitutive of spirit to take a negative stance towards nature. Um, well, I'm going to come back to this towards the end, but I'm going to say very little about it. So the main focus is really on uh, presenting the positive view, which I want to defend. Okay, so I come to section two. So, the thesis that spirit is manifestation is stated most prominently in Hegel's introduction to his philosophy of spirit in general. So that's in his late Encyclopedia of Philosophical Science, Sciences, which gives, gives a, an encyclopedic overview of his philosophical system as a whole. And in the introduction to the philosophy of spirit, he makes this uh, striking claim about spirit being manifestation. So that is uh, quotation number two on your handout. And this is really the central passage for the, 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 um, the following section. So I'm going to read it out in full now. And then all, everything that follows is really an attempt to uh, make sense of what Hegel is saying here. So quotation number two, the determinateness of spirit is manifestation. And I think determinateness here is a bestimmtheit. Spirit is not a certain determinateness or content, the expression or exteriority of which is merely a distinct form of it. Rather than revealing something, therefore, its determinateness and content is itself its revelation, this revelation. 
So you see that he's introducing this notion of manifestation by associating it with expressions such as um, expression, revelation is also something that he uses here. Um, and I think at the same time, he wants to argue against a certain way of understanding what it means for spirit to express itself or to reveal itself. Um, and I'm going to explain this now and uh, illustrate uh, through the example of emotional states. Uh, so this is a phenomenon which Hegel discusses extensively in his philosophy of mind, more, more specifically in his anthropology. Um, I think I could have chosen a different example because there, there are many phenomena which, which embody this structure, but I've chosen this example because it's something that Hegel discusses very extensively and also because I think it's a phenomenon which we are all familiar with. And we all have intuitions about emotional states. And uh, the emotional states in, questions, in question uh, belong to a category which Hegel calls inner sensations. So he has this interesting dis uh, distinction between inner and outer sensations. Emotions are uh, a species of sensation for him. Um, but that's not really important for us. What's important is that these are states in which a belief and an intentional stance occurs in unison with a certain bodily process or certain, certain bodily processes. So for instance, um, we can look at the state of fright or fear, Schrecken in German, um, and this is really the, the example that I'm going to focus on mostly in the, in the, in the following discussion. Um, so Hegel says the following about fear, and this is quotation number three. In fear, the soul withdraws into itself in the face of what it takes to be an unvanquishable negative, an unüberwindlich scheinendes Negatives. In contrast to shame, fear expresses itself in the blood draining from the cheeks and the person's turning pale and trembling. So we have on the one hand a belief, namely the belief that we are faced with an unvanquishable negative. And on the other hand we have bodily processes such as turning pale, trembling, so and so on and so forth. Now we can look at this example in light of the quotation number two on manifestation. So here is how one might analyze the phenomenon at hand. One might say, well, what's happening if somebody is in a state of fear is the following. First, this individual acquires a belief that they are faced with a negative object. And second, they experience certain bodily processes such as trembling, um, um, paling, and so on and so forth. And potentially, we, one might also add that the transition from one to two, from first from the belief to the bodily processes, is a causal transition. Right? So that the um, expression, the movement of expression would be a causal process. And note that on this account, the belief exists independently of and prior to being expressed or exteriorized, as Hegel here expresses it. Exteriority, the Äußerlichkeit. Um, and in, in the case uh, one thinks that this is a causal connection, this is obvious because of course the, um, the cause must precede its effect. So now if we go back to quotation number two, we could express this this analysis in the following terms, we could say that when somebody is in a state of fear, then there is a certain determinateness or content, the belief, whose expression or exteriority is merely a distinct form of it. So first we have the belief, and then in distinction from that, we have the, <coughs> the expression, the exteriority. And this is precisely the analysis which Hegel, I think, wants to oppose. Because in his view, when we are in a state of fear, the belief that we are faced with an invanquishable negative does in fact not exist independently of or prior to the bodily processes we undergo when we are in fear. And I think this becomes obvious from Hegel's description of the phenomenology of emotional states. Because he draws attention to the fact that 
from the point of view of the individual who undergoes the emotional state, the most accurate way of describing the content of the relevant belief refers to the bodily processes in question. And he observed that this fact has become deeply ingrained in our language. So this is quotation uh, number four, I think. Yes. Quotation number four, he says, Every one of us is already familiar with the main phenomena of this embodiment, Verleiblichung is the term here, on account of language which contains much that is relevant and cannot very well be explained away as an aged or old, age old error. So in German, in the German language, we have a variety of expressions for fear which are directly derived from the bodily processes in question. So for instance, we say that das Herz in die Hose, which is literally my heart slips into my pants. I don't know if that's an, a good translation, but it's like this falling <laughs> sensation, right? And uh, plus the sensation of trembling also, uh, of, of paling. Um, and that would, be, that would be used to, to describe a sudden onset of, of fear or fright. Um, and we also say sometimes somebody, sie bibbert, which is literally, I think she's jittering or trembling, and which means that you are very worried about something, you know, anticip anticipating something and, and, and trembling. I'm sure there are English uh, expressions. I would, uh, since I'm not a native speaker, I, 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 I thought it would be uh, more helpful to use German expressions here. So in light of linguistic phenomena such as these, Hegel's idea seems to be, well, the content of the beliefs we have when we are in emotional states uh, such as fear is really determined most accurately in reference to bodily processes. So we might say that these beliefs are determined by being embodied or verleiblicht. So in contrast to the analysis that we talked about before, the causal analysis, here the idea is that beliefs which accompany emotional states, uh, states such as fear do not exist prior to and independently of being exteriorized in bodily processes. Rather, the way they are exteriorized in the body determines their content, and in this sense, one might say, constitutes them as the beliefs they are. So then, going back again to the quotation number two, for Hegel, we do not, in such cases, have a certain determinateness or content the expression or exteriority of which is merely a distinct form of it, but instead the content in question becomes the content it is precisely in being exteriorized in this form. So that is the idea. And now I think it's very important to know that this is not a reductive theory. Sometimes Hegel is read as uh, a reductive theorist who's a kind of behaviorist almost about mental states and the mind. Um, but I think that's, that, that would be wrong because, um, well, Hegel thinks that we can say something about the content in question independently of referring to the, the bodily processes. But it's just not going to be fully accurate or not fully, fully true to what, what the content really is. Okay, so the first lesson we should take away from this is that manifestation occurs where we have a content of which it is, it is true that in the content is constituted by being exteriorized in a certain form. That's what, the con what constitutes the content. Um, and now I can also explain why I think that self-expression is actually a very apt expression for this for this idea, because um, the idea is that being exteriorized in a certain form belongs to the essence or nature of a content. The content, as it were, becomes itself by being exteriorized. Um, and so being exteriorized is not something alien or external to it, but it belongs to the content itself. So that's why you might say the content expresses itself in um, exteriorizing itself. And, um, then, and, and that's why you can speak of self-expression here. 
Okay, so that's the first important aspect of uh, manifestation. Now, I think there's a second important aspect here, which is a bit more elusive. Um, and that's what I'm going to talk about now. And I think it's, it's a very important aspect, as we will see later. And we can bring this into view by noting that Hegel wonders repeatedly and extensively whether there might be such a thing as a science of bodily manifestation. And he calls the science, this hypothetical science, psychische physiologie, which is psychic physiology, you might say. Um, and there's a long quotation on the handout number five where he wonders about the possibility of such a science. I'm not going to read this now, but if you want, you can go back to it later. So the question is, what would a Hegelian science of psychic physiology tell us, for instance, about the emotional state of fear? Well, you might say such a science, of course, exists, at least today. Um, and this science does something like the following. It gives us functional explanations of why certain bodily processes occur in association with certain beliefs. So you might say that when somebody is afraid of something, their blood rushes to their feet and they start to pale. And, and that is because that enables them to run faster. When blood runs to your, your legs and your feet, you will, be, you, you will be enabled to run faster and to escape from, from the danger. And that explains why you pale when you are uh, in fear. And of course, that is necessary in order for the animal or the, the individual to, to survive. It's something that they have to have in order to be able to survive. So that would be a functional explanation of the bodily processes in question, but I think that's not what Hegel is after here. Instead, he's after a science which would be able to, exp uh, to explain why certain bodily processes are apt to express certain beliefs. So the science would have to consider the content of the relevant beliefs and explain what it is about bodily processes which makes them apt to give expression to this content. And uh, this hypothesis is in fact confirmed by Hegel's own careful attempts at sketching what such a science might look like. So with regard to fear, for instance, he's very concerned at one point um, to show that there's some kind of affinity between the content of the relevant belief which you have when you're in fear and the corresponding bodily processes. Um, and this is uh, quotation number six. He says the following. In fear, the soul withdraws into itself in the face of what it takes to be an unvanquishable negative. In contrast to shame, fear expresses itself in the blood straining from the cheeks in the person's turning pale and trembling. Now, I'm not sure that Hegel intends reflections such as, as these to be, as it were, serious instances of the science of psychic physiology. Uh, because when, whenever he talks about this science, it's always in this hypothetical mood. Um, but in any case, if they were inten intended in this way, I think they would be utterly unconvincing. Um, because it seems to me that the, the kind of explanation that Hegel is offering here is circular. Um, because it's really only when the bodily process in question are already interpreted in a certain way that we can show an affinity between them and the, and the content in question. So note that in quotation number six, um, he's really describing the, the bodily processes in question in such a way that there's a kind of affinity between the bodily processes and the content of the belief. He's talking about you know, the content of the belief is a kind of, um, talks about a kind of withdrawal into oneself in the face of, of danger. And now he talks about the bodily processes also as a kind of withdrawal of the blood from, from the face. Um, so it seems that that is really, that, that would be a circular account, really. And uh, I think that's really the, the reason why Hegel thinks that, why, why he doesn't really affirm the possibility of such a science, but he's wondering about whether it's possible. Um, so it seems that there's really no reductive account available of what makes expression possible. Now, why is this significant? Well, as things stand, we can now say that 
It's true that certain mental contents, according to Hegel, are constituted by being expressed in bodily states. And at the same time, there's no independent, reductive account, there's no principle to be established which mediate between the expressed content on the one hand and the, the form in which the content is expressed on the other. So in other words, the transition from the content which is expressed and the form in which it is expressed is an immediate one. And Hegel, in fact, uses that expression a lot. So it's an immediate transition from one to the other. It's nothing which mediates between the two. So, and, and what's really interesting, almost paradoxical about this, is that these, the two form and content are somehow heterogeneous in the sense that they are not mediated with each other. There's nothing we can say about what they have in common which makes one apt to express the other. And at the same time, they are utterly closely bound together because one is constituted by being expressed in the other. So and I think this is going to have an important implication when we now, in the next section, come to the more general issue about uh, spirit and its relation to nature. Because um, so far, the discussion was really um, concerned with mental states, or what we would usually call mental states, beliefs, um, and how they are expressed in the body. So I haven't really mentioned or brought up the term nature at all. And this is what's going to happen now in the next section, where um, you will see that there's a similar structure in place, but now it is going to be couched in the more general terms of spirit on the one hand and nature in the other. So I turn to um, section number three now. So in the preceding section, I contrasted the phenomenon of manifestation or the structure of manifestation, as Hegel understands it, or self-expression, with a causal analysis of um, uh, mental states and their relation to bodily processes. And now in this section, again, somewhat analogously, I want to draw a contrast, and here the contrast is between um, manifestation or self-expression on the one hand and symbolic signification on the other hand. Um, and this means um, that we are going to contrast symbolic representation on the one hand with the relation between form and content which is characteristic of classical art on Hegel's account. So the, the context we are moving in here is the lectures on aesthetics and perhaps you know that Hegel has this um, uh, this threefold um, distinction of uh, you know, forms of art throughout history. Um, there's symbolic art and then classical art and then romantic art. So this is really taken from this um, from these, uh, distinction. But I'm going to interpret these in a, in a very systematic sense so that uh, uh, I'm not that much concerned with the historical background here. Um, okay. I'm going to start by rehearsing the central features of symbolic representation, uh, so, so, sorry, symbolic signification, as Hegel understands it. So the, the most important and the most obvious characteristic is that a symbol must have something in common or some similarity with that which it symbolizes. That's what qualifies it as a symbol. So for instance, uh, you have this little uh, drawing of a lotus flower on your handout. Um, and this is so, I did some research on this, so this is not the ordinary, as far as I understand, it's not an ordinary lotus flower, but, but it's actually a type of water lily, which was used as a symbol in ancient Egypt. So the ordinary lotus flower is also often used as a symbol, but it's used as a symbol for purity, because it apparently has the self-purification this capacity of purifying, cleaning itself. But now this lotus flower, um, what's characteristic of this lotus flower is that it closes its petals at, at night and opens them in the morning. And that's why in ancient Egypt it was used as a symbol for prayer, as if it was praying to the sun. Um, and so there, there's, there's something that the two have in common, you know, praying to the sun, uh, is, would be the content that is, uh, that is symbolized and the lotus flower qualifies as a symbol for that because it opens its petals in the morning. 
And note that, interestingly, this points to the possibility of a kind of reductive, objective account of what it is about a symbol that makes it apt to function uh, as a symbol for a certain content. So that's the first, uh, that's the first important characteristic. The second one is that, in spite of the similarity, Hegel nevertheless speaks of an inadequacy of the symbol on the one hand and its meaning on the other hand. And this inadequacy can be looked at from two different angles, from the point of view of the content which is symbolized and from the point of view of the symbol <coughs> itself. So regarding the content, um, Hegel says the following, quotation number seven, the symbolized contents are typically universal objects, allgemeine Gegenstände, such as generation, growth, perishing, Re perishing and re-emergence from death, destruction, and creation. Now, these general objects, or universal objects, they can be signified by means of symbols, but there's no reason why they need to be, uh, because they can, perfectly they can be conveyed and grasped perfectly adequately in terms of just general uh, universal ideas. Um, so that's from the point of view of the content. Now, from the point of view of the symbol, um, he wants to say that symbols are such that one symbol can be used to symbolize a certain universal content, but it can also be used to symbolize other contents as well. So for instance, the lotus flower that I talked about before was not only used as a symbol for prayer, but also for fertility. And also a bull, which uh, you also have on your handout. The bull can symbolize strength, fertility, many other qualities as well. So Hegel sums this up by saying that the symbol is essentially ambiguous. That's quotation number eight. Um, yeah. So in other words, what Hegel also says is that the symbol the relation between the symbol and its content, its symbolized content, is merely external. So to a certain degree it has to be stipulated that a certain form functions as a symbol for a certain content in a given context. It's stipulated, it's external. Okay, so these are the, the central characteristics of symbolic signification. Now, let's contrast this with the relation between form and content which is characteristic of classical art on Hegel's account. And one thing that's really striking about Hegel's discussion of classical art is that he says repeatedly that classical art must take the human figure, the menschliche Gestalt, as its main content and form. And what's furthermore very important for our uh, discussion today is that it's precisely in virtue of the fact that classical art takes the human figure as its content and form, that it's not symbolic, or not merely symbolic. Um, so there's uh, this long quotation number nine on the <coughs> handout where he formulates these ideas. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, I'm just reading from um, the fourth line from the bottom. So here he says, the human figure is the only necessary and possible one. Spirit can present itself only in this form. Because in the human figure, which is a form of sensuous existence, the body is no longer a symbol. It does not express something other, something alien, but its meaning immediately appears on its surface. <coughs> so, I think in light of the preceding discussion we had of uh, emotional states such as fear, we are now in a good, in a good situation, in a good point, in a good, in a good um, we are well poised to make sense of what Hegel is saying here about the relation between content and form in, uh, in, uh, in the human figure. Um, so the idea is that the content, the mental content which is expressed, or the, the mind, the, the spirit, spiritual content, which is expressed in the body, is not alien to it, is not external to it in the way in which a symbolized content is external to, um, to the symbol which symbolizes it. Rather, the content is 
the, this form in the sense that it needs to be exteriorized in this form in order to be adequately determined or expressed. Right? So it's exactly the same structure that we saw uh, in place in the, in the discussion of, of fear earlier on. Um, so, and at the same time, of course, we have to keep in mind that it's not a reductive account, importantly. Um, so there's really a clear contrast here with one central aspect of symbolic signification, because in symbol symbolic sig <coughs> signification we have this externality of form and content of the symbol and what, uh, what it symbolizes. Um, and here, in contrast, the content must take the external form which it takes in order to be become the content it's supposed to be. And and so I think it's very clear that here we have again the structure of manifestation in, play in, in, in place and in fact there's textual evidence of this because Hegel talks a lot, he, he starts to talk a lot about manifestation when, when he uh, begin, begins to talk about uh, classical art. Now, I think there are two important questions now that we have to address and the first one is, well, what precisely is the content that he's talking about here? Um, so in our earlier, this, in, 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 the, in the preceding section, we talked about content such as beliefs, which we have when we are in certain emotional states, but it's clear that the content here has to be something somehow more universal, some t something more important, as it were. And so that's the first question, what is the content? And second, perhaps even more importantly, what exactly is the form in this case? Because after all, it's clear that in, when we are talking about works of art, we don't have a real human body here. We're not talking about the natural human body as we did in the preceding section, but we're talking about artistically created human bodies. And so there's a question here about what difference that makes in Hegel's view. Okay, I'll start with uh, question two. Now, it's very interesting that Hegel <coughs> emphasizes that the human figure even as it occurs in the classical work of art, is a form of nature. Now, um, he says this explicitly in uh, quotation number 10. Um, I'm, I'm skipping the first sentence. He says, art needs for the expression of spiritual content the given forms of nature together with their meaning, which art must discern and appropriate. Among such formations, the human is the supreme and genuine formation because only in this, sorry, typo, can the spirit have its bodiliness and thus an expression accessible to intuition. Now, note that this introduces something new to our discussion of manifestation, which we had in the preceding discussion, because in the preceding, in the preceding section, because in the preceding section, the discussion was couched in terms of mental states such as beliefs and bodily process on the other hand, and here, in contrast, the more general notion of nature is being introduced. Um, well, Hegel himself says repeatedly that, that this notion is somewhat undetermined here in this context. But I think what we can glean from a number of relevant passages is that in this context, what is meant by nature is that nature is something which is given to us, something which we haven't made something with regard to which we are passive. And this, of course, becomes very important in the context of artistic creation, um, because the artist that Hegel is concerned with here, the classical artist, is somebody who is not in a position where they have to create artistic form from scratch, as it were. But Hegel repeatedly emphasizes is that the classical artist is someone who takes something given from nature, and that is the human figure. It's a given form of nature. Mm. Okay, now if we put this together with the first aspect in which this present form of expression or manifestation is contrasted with symbolic signi signification, um, then we, we can see that we are here concerned with a content which needs to be exteriorized in the human figure, which is a given form of nature, in order to be adequately determined or expressed. So the, it's constitutive of the content that it is 
exteriorized in a form of nature. So you might say that the natural form is constitutive of the content. Now, um, let's consider an example from Hegel's discussion of classical sculpture. And uh, in this discussion, Hegel introduces the notion of ideality, which he takes from Winkelmann. Um, and ideality is the feature in virtue of which classical sculptures express or manifest, more accurately, spirit. And in fact, Hegel distinguishes uh, classical Greek sculptures from Egyptian sculptures in this respect, which he says have merely a symbolic relation to their content. And he says that in studying classical sculptures, our overall aim is really to understand the features in virtue of which a sculpture exhibits ideality. So the features which make the sculpture apt to give expression to spirit. Um, that's um, uh, quotation number 11. I'm not going to read it now. And now very interestingly, in one instance, at uh, one point of his discussion of classical sculpture, he's, ex he's concerned with explaining why it is not just the human face, but in particular the classical Greek face, the classical Greek profile, um, which is especially ideal, which is especially apt to give expression to um, spiritual content or to express spirit. And the content in question, and now we, come, uh, we approach the question of what is the content here, the content is described by Hegel in the following way. Um, this is quotation number 12 and 13. It says that the content that to express here is a theoretical relation towards things um, or this ideal attitude to objects, the contemplative attitude. Um, now, note that this content is in a way much more explicitly spiritual content than the, uh, the belief states or beliefs that we talked about in the preceding section. Um, and in fact, I think one can almost hear an echo of the, the, the thesis that I, that I talked about in the beginning, namely that it's central to spirit, that it negates nature. You know, here, that idea comes up uh, in the form that uh, what its spirit is to take a contemplative attitude towards things and in that sense to distance oneself from, from the world. Okay, so we have spirit, a spiritual content, contemplation, um, ideal as attitude, contemplation, theoretical relation to things. And this, this content is now expressed in or manifest in a given form of nature, the human face. And I think this example is remarkable for the reason that it's one of the very few instances in which Hegel is trying to give an explanation of what it is about a certain bodily constitution or formation, in particular as one finds it in a classical sculpture, which makes it apt to give expression to the relevant content, namely spirit. And the explanation he offers is the following, this is quotation number 14, and this little drawing of the Greek profile you have is by um, Hegel's student, Hotu, who uh, also made the, the lecture transcript from which the, the quotation is taken. So Hegel says, the eye is the organ of a theoretical relationship to things, the mouth is the practical organ. In the Greek profile, the second or ideal disposition towards objects, the reflective disposition appears in the upper portion of the countenance. It faces outwards and is the main thing, and it furnishes the ideal character of human physiognomy. So the idea is that in the Greek profile, the um, theoretical organs, the eye and the um, forefront, are more dominant than the practical organs, which are the mouth in particular, because the mouth, the mouth is a practical organ because it is through the mouth that we you know, devour things and uh, take a practical attitude toward things. That's Hegel's idea. And uh, in the Greek profile, as you can see from the little drawing, the, the eye and forefront are more prominent, protruding, more protruding than, than the mouth. Now, I think it's interesting here that there's a similarity with this attempt 
uh, at explaining what it is about the Greek profile which makes it apt to give expression to spirit with the, uh, the attempt at uh, uh, providing instances of psychic physiology that we talked about earlier on where he tries to explain what it is about the bodily process of paling which is, makes it apt to give expression to um, a mental content. And I think this present explanation that we have in, in quotation number 14 suffers from exactly the same weakness, if in fact it is intended as an explanation, because it's either, I think it's either circular, um, namely based on, uh, on the fact that the eye is already interpreted in a certain way as a theoretical organ and the mouse is also interpreted uh, in a certain way. So it's either circular or it is not going to be convincing. And note also that if this explanation was to succeed, I think, it was in fact give us an instance of symbolic signification. Because in that case, the Greek profile would turn out to signify the theoretical attitude um, in virtue of a kind of structural similarity between the, the Greek profile and the theoretical attitude. So it what would not in fact achieve what Hegel is trying to achieve and to explain expression. But in fact this, this instance is a very, very isolated instance um, in Hegel's discussion of classical sculpture because most of the time what he does is he just describes the ideality of Greek sculpture. He follows Winkelmann here very closely. Um, and he also describes Egyptian sculptures in order to provide a contrast with classical sculptures. So he doesn't in fact try to give a systematic, thorough explanation of the ideality of sculpture. Now again, why is this significant? Well, I think here we have really the same factors in place as we had in our uh, analysis of the emotional state of fear. First, the content in question is such that it is constituted by being expressed in a certain external form. And second, for all we know, or as far as we can tell, this expressive relation is not mediated by something which content and form have in common. We cannot give a reductive account of what it is about a certain, um, a, a certain form of nature which makes it apt to express spiritual content. Now, in the present case, this aspect, I think, assumes a wider significance than in the case of emotional states, because here the exterior form in question is not just a bodily process, but more generally nature, a given form of nature uh, and nature understood as something which uh, is given to us, something which we have not made. So that what we see here is that a spiritual content, or in short spirit, is manifest in a natural form. That is, it's constituted by being expressed in this form, but not in virtue of the fact that the content and the form have something in common with each other, or are mediated with each other. So even more paradoxically than in the case of emotional states such as fear, here we have content and form on the one hand being, as it were, utterly heterogeneous to each other, not mediated by anything they have in common, and on the other hand, utterly closely bound together because one is constituted by being expressed in the other. And I think this resonates with intuitions which we have about the way in which form and content relate in works of art <coughs> more generally. Uh, because we think that we can say something about the content which is expressed in a work of art in abstraction from the external form in which it is expressed, but we cannot give an exhaustive statement of the content in this way. And ultimately, the content needs the this very form in order to be adequately expressed. And furthermore, in works of art, we cannot give a reductive, external, or objective account of what it is about the external form of a work of art which makes it apt to express its content. So that's the, the general similarity here, I think, between this account and, 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 and the very basic intuitions we have about the way in which form and content are related in works of art. Okay, I come to my conclusion. 
So I would suggest that it's precisely in virtue of this fact that here we have form and content being on the one hand utterly heterogeneous to each other and on the other hand utterly closely bound to each other that here the structure of manifestation is most fully realized in works of art for Hegel. You might say that in the preceding, in the, in the previous case that we talked about, the heterogeneity wasn't quite as explicit and as obvious as here where we have nature on the one hand and, and spirit on the other. Um, and now, question in the background still, what about this initial idea that we started with that the essence of spirit is to liberate itself from nature? and uh, the, the negation thesis, which is the predominant reading of Hegel's conception of spirit. Well, I think we can hold on to the idea that the essence of spirit is liberation from nature, but we're going to have to understand liberation or freedom a bit differently. So not, not so much in the Kantian sense, which uh, was kind of implied in the, uh, in, in the dominant reading, as I interpreted it, um, but in a different sense. And I think this comes out in the, in the final quotation, um, quotation number 15, which is in fact taken from the paragraph which immediately precedes the paragraph in which Hegel introduces the notion of manifestation. Uh, and this whole paragraph is about the notion of freedom and um, liberation. And Hegel says here, the substance of spirit is freedom, that is to say lack of dependence upon another, the relating of itself to itself. And now, but the freedom of mind is not merely an independence of the other, one outside the other, but one within the other. It attains actuality not by fleeing from the other, but by overcoming it, durch dessen Überwindung. So I think one might say that it is in pre it's precisely in virtue of the fact that spirit is manifestation in the sense we talked about earlier, that spirit accompli accomplishes a genuine liberation from nature, a liberation of freedom from nature, which is worthy of the name, if you, if you like. Um, but this, this understanding of freedom here is much closer to Schiller's, I think, than to Kant's. And, uh, and the central idea here is that one is free from nature, not by merely negating it, but by being in a position to, as it were, let nature free to acknowledge its otherness, to allow it to be other, and yet to find oneself supported by it or expressed in it. Um, this, this, is what, this is what it means to überwinden. This is actually a term which Schiller also uses, überwinden. It's not, uh, it's, it's not to throw someone down, uh, not to subjugate them, but well, I think what it means to really überwinden, to overcome, is precisely the structure which is expressed in Hegel's account of manifestation. So, um, I think this is what freedom, what genuine freedom consists in for Hegel. And, and that kind of freedom is something that spirit accomplishes precisely by being essentially manifest in nature. Thank you. <laughs>